the auteur theory of film actually is very true if you know directors, uh, because they are very much like their movies. Uh, and in the case of somebody who writes and directs, you know, it is my life. I mean, everything I write is my life. I'm not writing some sort of hypothetical thesis on something. I'm writing a story that I have to get extremely emotional involved in because it's going to take two or three years of my life to do it. So I can't just sort of say, oh, this will be fun and knock it off in a week. I have to, this is like a marriage. This goes on. You have to be in love with this thing for at least four or five years and probably for the rest of your life. This is fucking awesome. Star Wars fans and Moof Milkers, welcome to episode number 36 of Blast Points. Uh, this is Jason. And it's Gabe, too. So there's never a shortage of news, and there was a little bit of episode 8 news. A little bit? Just a little bit. Just a taste. Just taste? Get Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 8. Ryan Johnson shared a photo on on social media that he was beginning to edit episode eight. Which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Soon there'll be a rough cut. Then there'll be additional shooting probably. Mm-hmm. But it's exciting. It's for real. There's footage. You know, and I would think too, they have to probably have an edit ready so that as soon as ILM's done with Rogue One, they can jump right into the uh, episode eight stuff. When do you, when do you think... Like, ILM has to be, like, have all their shots f- turned in for Rogue One. Well, these days with everything being digital at the end, probably, like, two weeks before it comes out. Yeah, probably. There's you long, know, because even with a... the prequels, they were tweaking those right up till just a week or two before. So, yeah, I think it's it's going to be tight, right? It usually is. Well, and I but, like, I was thinking about it the other day, like, it's a long, long post-production time for Episode Eight. They could even be trying to get Rogue One done early just because they know they have to start episode eight. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a good little over 12 months of post-production effects work for eight. Yeah, which still seems fast because, well, when we talk, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But uh, with the prequels, like I think they had, you know, a year and a half of post-production. Oh, my God. It was crazy. Yeah. I remember but. getting like really excited about Attack of the Clones and trying to explain to people that it didn't come out for another three years. This is a mistake, a terrible mistake. They've gone too far. This is madness. <laughs> so 
So I feel like we just had the Rogue One trailer, but last week, surprise, surprise, Lando in disguise, there was another Rogue One trailer, the international trailer, which gave, I really feel like, I, I love all Star Wars trailers with Japanese subtitles. Yeah, well, all, it usually means it's a good one. Yeah. As soon as they put the subtitle, because with Force Awakens, it's like the one that had the crazy crowd shot for no reason was the was the Japanese or Korean one, and and then this international one, yeah, was just like the supercut, the official supercut with stuff from the first and the second trailer. It really wasn't. It wasn't super different. There wasn't a whole lot that we hadn't seen before. The biggest thing, though, was there was more Mon Mothma, which you can never complain about. Nope. Where she was saying they decepted a coded. Coded Imperial transmission indicates a major weapons test is intimate. Cassian Andor then jumps in and says the message was sent by your father. We have intercepted a coded Imperial transmission. It indicates that a major weapons test is imminent. The message was sent by your father. All right. Yeah. So maybe he's still, uh, he's on the Death Star maybe. In a snazzy little Imperial uniform. I think it's Jin and Cassian are on the Death Star, and they're going to run into Galen, and things are going to get real. Yeah, I can see it. Things I can gonna, see it happening. Things are going to get realer. Real deal, <laughs> Holyfield. <laughs> Real world road rules. <laughs> well, it makes me wonder, too, that one thing with that international trailer, did the Rebels already, because it sounds like in that trailer, they didn't know about the Death Star? Do you, I mean, do you think the Rebels already know about the Death Star? Like the Rebel Alliance? Do you think that's going to come up in Rebels Season 3? We've talked about this a lot, but... Maybe they'll, you know, like get... Hear about that there's something, or the Empire's on something, but I can't imagine them seeing it until Rogue One. I don't know, it just feels like it's it's kind of off in the middle of nowhere. Like, who who would run into it and be able to get away and tell people about it? That's no moon. It's a space station. Do you think in the trailer when it's upside down, upside down Death Star, is it is it like orbiting Jeddah at that point? I wonder. Yeah, I don't know because I got the. I don't know. It just feels like to me that it's going to be just in one place. But yeah, maybe it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking it would just be like it's like Return of the Jedi. It's just going to be kind of still under construction somewhere. Um, but yeah, who knows? Maybe it will go to another planet because the that shot of just the Independence Day shot of stuff rocks flying from the sky mm-hmm. kind of looks more like Jeddah than the um, what's the other planet called? Scarif. Scarif, yeah. It looks more like Jeddah than Scarif, so yeah, maybe it does fly over there and uh, test out its gun. Yeah, because I feel like the, the eclipse part is uh, when they're killing all their plants. I feel like that's. That's Jeddah, I feel like. Oh, you're right. It did look like Jeddah. So, yeah. If you start thinking about piecing together the uh, chronology of the movie, that it looks like the big climax with the adats and everything is potentially on Scarif, but maybe that's just the middle of the movie. Well, and I wonder if the whole thing with Scarif is like the um, the rebels attacking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the Empire, like in the, the New Hope opening crawl. Fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear of this battle station. And what of the rebellion? If the rebels have obtained a complete technical readout of this station, it is possible, however unlikely, that they might find a weakness and exploit it. The plans you refer to will soon be back in our hands. Uh, 
yeah, well, because, yeah, I mean, at some point the Death Star does escape. It takes <laughs> off. I love the, yeah. If, man, if there's a Death Star going into, like, light speed shot, <laughs> <laughs> I Later. might just give birth to a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and then high five the baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, the Death Star has to be able to do hyperspace, right? Uh, <laughs> because if it goes, it goes to different planets. It goes, yeah, it goes to different systems. It goes and blows up Alderaan. Yeah, because they're yeah. In, yeah, and then it goes to Yavin. Yeah, so that we might see the Death Star doing the hyperspace thing, <laughs> <laughs> bouncing around. Yeah. So, uh, a couple of book covers came out of um, Rogue One, like kids' books and stuff, and there was like the junior novelization, but one of them looks really compelling. It's Bringing a, out the big guns. Yeah, it's a Baze, it's called like, what was it called? Ba- it's it's a kid's book all about Baze and Chirrut. Yeah, it's like, at least the, the temporary covers, like Star Wars Rogue One, Baze and Chirrut, a middle grade novel. <laughs> For all the middle grade kids who are going to love Bass and Chirrut. We destroyed our home. I fight the Empire now. It's about, <laughs> they, it's, you know, they, I, they know what kids like. <laughs> they like awesome stuff. I fear nothing. All is as the Force wills it. <laughs> I was about what they were doing before the movie. Before they got all wrapped up in Jyn Erso's plan and all that. Oh, maybe. Being buddies. Ordering food. Yeah. Watching a space baseball game together. (laughs) Riding the bus. (laughs) So there was a little bit of news with... This could potentially end up being in the the Star Wars land, Star Wars world, whatever they're building out in the Disney parks. Welcome to the Star Tours to Motherland Spaceport. Attention, please. Star Tours Flight 1119, nonstop service to Endor, is now ready for boarding at gate number one. All passengers, please proceed to the boarding area immediately. That Disney filed a patent for what they're calling an audience interaction projection system, where basically it's going to be a real lightsaber. And like a drone thing flying around. And it sounds like it's going to be like a Jedi training situation. Yeah, it sounds pretty crazy. They were talking about the possibility of a theater that will be filled with liquid nitrogen or water vapor. And you'll have an LED device with infrared tech with real stuff coming at you. And you'll have like an actual kind of real lightsaber. Yeah. And it looks like the lightsaber has sent multiple sensors down the blade so it can detect where you, if you hit the blaster bolt back, where you would hit it from and it would maybe shoot a laser back at the at the floating drone training droid thing. They better have really soft floors in there. <laughs> so we'll just, everyone will be passing out. Yeah, because I'll pass right out. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it says you're supposed to have, there's a vest that goes with it too, so if the if you miss Shut blocking up. the bolt, like you'll feel it on your body. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. Yeah, it'll just smell like pee in there. <laughs> 
I have to hose it down every time. <laughs> like a 40-year-old man came. I don't know. Some 40-year-old guy came in here and pissed himself. <laughs> we didn't even give him the lightsaber thing yet. Hot direct hit, but no damage. I mean, will you get to choose your hilt? Will you get to choose what color saber you want? Oh, wow, yeah. They'll have everybody's money. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be like, do you want a green saber or a blue saber? And then I'll pee, I'll pee again. Yeah, if you pee your pants, the saber turns red. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's dark side. The best DVD produced today just got better. Beginning November 9th, the Star Wars Episode 1 DVD will be your key to unlock an exclusive Episode 2 internet preview. A DVD-ROM drive and internet access are required. Be the first to see it. Buy it today. Last week, we talked a little bit about the the Force Awakens Blu-ray coming back out again. And kind of like, at least my main reason for wanting to buy that thing again, even though it's ridiculous... It's pretty much, I feel like, my love of Star Wars bonus features. But I still feel like probably one of the best Star Wars home video releases, yeah, definitely one of the best, is the Phantom Menace DVD. came out October 16th, 2001. Yeah. And it was it was cool because they made us wait forever for the DVD to come out. Mm-hmm. But when it did come out, it was like this, you know... They're like, this is why we were waiting. Like, it was jam-packed with stuff. It was probably the most jam-packed with special features DVD to that point ever. I mean, at that point, that was like the top of the... That was before everybody had two discs with a ton of special features on it. It was like before the Lord of the Rings ones came out and kind of went nuts with it. I took the day off from work, went and got it early when the store first opened, and spent all... I was like, this is all I'm doing all day. I got a box of Krispy Kreme donuts... And I ate yep. I ate the entire box of Krispy Kremes and then I had and I watched I watched like the beginning and I watched Phantom Menace with commentary and then I fell asleep. I had to take a nap. I was overloaded. Yeah. Even without the donuts, that probably would have done would do a normal person in. <laughs> it's, too, it's just too much adrenaline. It was the first Star Wars movie ever on DVD. At the time it was the fastest selling DVD in US history with two point two million copies sold in its first week. And everybody hates that movie. <laughs> they hate it so much. They hate it. Except for those two million people who bought it the first day. Uh, and I feel like on that disc is a real standout by which all other Star Wars making of documentaries are compared against. It's the, the documentary about the making of Episode One called The Beginning. Yeah, I totally agree that it's... For being something kind of from Lucasfilm, it's pretty honest. And even, you know, over the years, people think George Lucas likes to change history or, you know, not be totally honest with what he meant or what he said in the past. But, like, they don't really hold back on this. Like, you know, there's some bad stuff and good stuff. And, like, it's pretty much, you know, warts and all look at the making of the movie. It was made by a documentary filmmaker named John Schenck. And he was a camera operator 
on episode one. He was just a year out of Stanford Film School. A lot of the footage he was shot was used on the early days of StarWars.com before the film's release. And Lucas had like a vague notion, he said, about using it for an educational project later. And they basically, his instructions, what he said was the idea was for him to shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, So while he was making it, he was saying he kept thinking this is an opportunity for a great documentary. And he said he tried to talk to Lucas about it sometimes, but they didn't give it much thought. So in the end, he shot uh, over 600 hours of footage. 600 hours. Where's that on Blu-ray? Where it's, they still got it somewhere. Because I'll watch all 600 hours so, in a heartbeat. And he edited the whole thing together in two months. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So then one other interesting thing is that he handed in his final cut, and Lucas had final approval over the beginning. Although John Shank says he didn't change anything significant. It's definitely, it's not like a fluff piece. Like, you compare it to what's on The Force Awakens Blu-ray. Yeah, because there's really no, there's no um, interviews with people. No. Where it's like, it's like, if there's people talking, it's because they were on set that day talking about stuff. So it is, it's like you're there watching it, and it's not, yeah, there's not the little fluff stuff where they'll give you a clip of something, but then it's just somebody talking about what you're seeing. It's like you're hearing what they were saying while you're seeing it. And it's no one talking about, like, what we're doing is so important and we're doing it for the fans and blah, 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 blah. There's none of that. You're, you're, you're sitting in on, like, budget meetings. Yeah, which are fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, mean, every, I think every minute of this, of the hour and six minutes is super fascinating. And it's a thing, too, that it's so good that people who still claim they hate Phantom Menace and don't ever want to watch it, Nobody, I don't think I've ever seen anyone who says they don't like this documentary. Well, and it's interesting, too, because this documentary is used a lot for people either hate Phantom Menace or hate the prequels. This documentary is used often for them to prove their points, which, which from a certain point of view, I understand. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view because you know don't get me wrong like phantom menace is my number two favorite star wars movie of all time like i seriously really really love phantom menace like it's number yeah. two behind it's number two for me too so yeah you can, you can tell there's something wrong with us i don't know but yeah, yeah. i love that yeah i love phantom menace and watching this but on the other hand i think yeah this also shows just how much Effort and love and care went into making Phantom Menace and how much of, a, of the things that people say that was bad about the prequels isn't true as far as like, oh, it's all CG crap and Lucas doesn't care about models. And right. Where are the puppets? Where, you know, it's all in this documentary. You can see them making all that stuff. Well, and I feel like the one scene that the, um, the critics of the prequels or Phantom Menace point to is after they've watched the first cut. And Lucas says, maybe I've gone too far, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and he does say one thing that is very true, again, from a certain point of view, is he's done, he, the Phantom Menace is done in a more extreme way than he's ever yeah. done before. He specifically says it's more extremely than he's ever done before. Which is true. Yeah. And, then, and that's why I think 
a lot of people love Phantom Menace because he took Star Wars and he pushed it beyond its limits. And it's too much for some people. I totally get that. But it's like he wasn't, you know, taking the easy way out. He was going to make Star Wars 200%. If George Lucas is coffee, there's no cream and sugar in the prequels. (laughs) You know, it's like the original trilogy. There's a little sugar in there. There's a little cream. Maybe there's some hazelnut mixed in. But the prequels is just like chewing on the beans. (laughs) It's all Lucas. All art is technology, and all artists eventually end up pushing against that technology, whether it's needing to develop a new red or a new blue or you know, invent oils and canvases to get off the, you know, the, the back wall of the church. And, and you know, uh, you're always sort of faced with some kind of constraint that holds you back. And I knew if I were to go back and do the, the the next Star Wars trilogy that I'd really have to make some leaps technologically to get the the job done. And and um, uh, I really, in the end, wanted to see that story told. And I really wanted to... I liked the story of Darth Vader. And I, I thought, this will be fun, because this will be doing the Star Wars that I did before, only without all the frustration of bumping into the technology. So... I wrote down a bunch of stuff. Gabe, you wrote down a bunch of stuff. Let's just run through some of our favorite stuff f- through okay. the whole through the whole documentary. All right, it's all my favorite stuff. <laughs> That's why I just wrote like, everything down because there's stuff to talk about for every every part. It starts out five months before filming begins, and it's got the famous shot of George Lucas putting up a bunch of uh, a bunch of storyboards. And he's got a bunch of highlighters. And he's going through, doing real, not so real. I would say, in the end, that this is set. Yeah, we've got one little piece of wool. Yes. Oh, yeah. two pieces of wool, maybe. And then this is a, you guys. Mm-hmm. This is real. Mm-hmm. And this is real. Real, real, not so real. Not so real, not so real. Real. Real, not so real. Going through the whole movie and telling the head honchos at ILM how much work they're going to be, have to be doing for the next, like, three years. Well, the thing that, that's really big here is, is uh, in the, um, the big uh, grass planet battle there. And the yeah. Zillions of creatures. And we... We don't have a real good way of doing that right now. So, <laughs> so that's where some real innovation. Yeah, I know, but that, that is the challenge. Exactly. Say, that's that's the set piece. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole thing is that how are you going to top the pod race? Well, and that whole scene is kind of amazing when you think back because people forget that before Phantom Menace, like, they didn't make movies that way. So it was like they had to figure out how to do this. And this was like, you know, they're figuring out how to do. CG stuff. They're figuring out how to do the crazy compositing. There's never, there was never a movie with this many effects shots in it. Um, mm. And that meeting where they're just kind of figuring out how they're going to do it, like that, you know, it's groundbreaking stuff, really. Well, and yeah, and there's all the ILM guys passing around their famous looks of concern, you know, looking com- completely terrified. Uh, John Knoll looks like a baby because he doesn't have a goatee, and it's yeah. like, well, Annie hadn't made the prequels to like. Put twenty years on his life too, just from working so hard, figuring all that stuff out. Well, and and George Lucas makes says something at the end where the key to the whole thing is Jar Jar. 
Jar Jar is a key to all this. If we get Jar Jar working, because he's a funnier character than we've ever had in any of the movies well, before. Which, which is true, though, because, you know, everyone likes to talk about Gollum, but, like, that was the first time there was a full CG character that was a main character through a whole movie. Mm-hmm. It had never been done before. No one had tried it. Um... And it, and it was, and that is, you know, like you were saying before, people bring that up and joke about like, that, like, oh, that's why the movie's dumb. And But, you know, that's a big deal. And I think it's something that Ahmed Best doesn't get the credit that he deserves for kind of pioneering that whole thing. No, and there's a really interesting thing later in the, the beginning documentary where Ahmed Best is doing what looks like the first, like, motion capture, kind of, because he's wearing, like, like a headband yeah. and, like, like, a diving suit and yeah, that's a mocap suit. He's totally doing mocap for Jar Jar, it, which it, is what they make a big deal about Andy Serkis doing. That's his whole career now. But like, like now they got like the whole mocap suit with all the little squares on it and stuff. Like, seriously, Ahmed Best is wearing like a headband with a ping pong ball on it. Yeah, like, he's doing the mocap, and also you know when they went to basically everywhere even in the desert in 100 degree heat like they had him on set in the suit too like doing that the animators could use for reference which is something that they still do to this day by having now when they can do the mocap on set part of that is to get the mocap and part of it is to see the actor performing with the cast and i mean he was doing that as well and it's interesting in the beginning because the the suit like the whole argument of do we do jar jar in a suit do we do not in a suit they're figuring that out as they go. Yeah. Like and I thought it was really fascinating going back watching it too that ILM was the ones pushing to do full CG and Lucas was the one pushing for having a guy in a suit. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if you talk to people now, it's like George Lucas is the devil because he wanted everything to be CG. And it was like, you know, <laughs> he, he, he had to have his mind changed as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I think a lot of people, when if they watch, even if they watch the beginning, I, some people aren't even. People are going in with a pre predetermined attitude about whatever they think about the prequels or Episode One, and they're just like they're not. I don't think people are even paying attention to those parts. Yeah. Well, and people like to. That's bringing up the ILM storyboard scene too is another one where the people like to laugh at when Lucas is talking about how the movies rhyme and their poetry. With this incredible Jedi battle that we've always heard about in the last three movies, but never really yeah. got to see, mm-hmm. and then that with Anakin, you know, kind of duplicating the Luke Skywalker role, but you see the echo of where it all is going to go. And instead of do- destroying the Death Star, he destroys the ship that controls the robots. Again, it's like poetry. So if they rhyme, mm-hmm. every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully, it'll work. I think it's true. They do. Well, it's a, it goes back to the ring theory also. I mean. Yeah, it was there in the original trilogy, and it's obviously there through the prequels as well. Like, mm-hmm. they're supposed to kind of, it's Lucas's thing. Shortly after that is my favorite part, one of my favorite parts, one of my favorite things that has ever been created of all time ever. Do you know what it is? No. <laughs> Jar Jar Puppet on the back of a pickup truck. Oh, I forgot about that part. Yes. Look at our camera. Look, see if you can sort of look behind you as he goes. That's good. That's a good turn. Okay. Ride, ride, and look behind him. Look forward. Make those quick moves. You look back, then forward. Yeah, that's better. Okay. More abrupt. Okay, that's good. That's right up there with the, the G897 baby walking around stuff. Yeah, Jar Jar in the back of the truck. 
the full-on Muppet fuzzy version of it. I can't get enough of that. Like, that's... I remember the first time I watched that, and that made me, like... Like, <laughs> this is where we're going. Yeah. And, like, that wasn't a joke. Like, that was... They were like, hey, maybe, maybe Jar Jar's going to be a big puppet, and we'll drive a truck around, and it'll look like he's riding on something. Yeah. There's probably an hour of that footage somewhere. And I was thinking, like, if you lived... In, like, the area of Skywalker Ranch, like, somewhere down the road from Skywalker Ranch, there's somebody else that lives there. And imagine if you're out checking your mail, (laughs) and you see the pickup truck go by with Ben Burt with a video camera and some ILM dude. What? Like, okay, have him him move left. (laughs) Turn around. See Jar Jar Puppet go streaming by. Uh, I would just be sitting, hiding in the bushes all day. Every day. I wouldn't be able to work. <laughs> Where's Gabe? Oh, he's in the bushes again. <laughs> this is my home now. Yeah. I think I see puppets and trucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, shortly after that, you got a lot of stuff with uh, Kid Jake Lloyd signing his contract to do episode one. Yeah. Well, and you get to see the, the other two runners up for Anakin, too, which I thought was really really interesting to see at the time and even looking back at it now too like because there's a lot of fans for the second Anakin are you an angel what an angel I've heard the deep space pilots talk about them they live on the moons of Iago I think well you know and it's interesting because like the whole Jake Lloyd thing that's one thing with the honesty of the beginning is you really get a sense that Jake Lloyd on the set was frustrating for them. Yeah. Seeing that stuff was really neat. And then, but also that they acknowledged that even at the audition where it's like this kid is kind of all over the place, but they just liked kind of how he felt. And I kind of agree with them. Like that second kid is probably a better actor, but there is something like just kind of goofy and fun about Jake Lloyd. And he, and maybe that's why people don't like him is he doesn't feel like an actor. He kind of just feels like a kid who's on set. Right. But that's what they liked about him as well. Yeah. Well, and then if you watch that audition, like there are times that, especially when Lucas shows the, the tape to like Doug Chang and a bunch of people in the art department, like that audition, like almost has a, Sounds a little better than some of the stuff that's in the movie, kind of. Scene one, take two. Are you an angel? What? An angel. Never heard of angels before. You must be one. Maybe you just don't know it. Scene one, take three. You can see the difference between the two kids. Yeah. Yeah. One is going to do the production a lot faster. Yeah. Right. So and the other one, I have to just so do a zillion takes and cut the performance. But the performance sort of rises yeah. way above. Yeah. 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 The other one does. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's so unpredictable. And it's kind you of have to go. Yeah. unstudied. Well, mm-hmm. Will I ever see you again? Okay. Right. Thanks for bringing that. I hope so. Would you choose? Jake. Because <laughs> he seems more natural. Mm-hmm. I like his body language. Mm-hmm. It's just not trained. And this one just hits the beats. Yeah, I was going to say, some people audition real well. Like, there's one part in the documentary where Lucas is talking about what how the day went and to to Rick McCallum, I believe. And he's like, mm-hmm. he's like, and Jake is Jake. They're recording, like, the dinner scene. 
Yeah. That's and a Jake, good part. Jake Lloyd is just, it's, he's, you get the sense that he's screwing up a bunch of takes. And Lucas at one point almost becomes frustrated. Like, listen, don't play with your food. Just say the lines. Peruska? Cut. Let's try it again. Eight okay. out, please. There's some pieces in there. Print that one. Okay, why don't we try one without you even dealing with your food so you just can focus on your line. Okay. You know? No, it's not the food that's a problem. It's me always... I, I'm used to saying Karuskin. All right. Not if you If you mispronounce it, it's okay. But I love his excuse. He's like, I thought it was... Corsant or course you can't say corsant, which it's like neither can anyone else, so I totally <laughs> And Lucas is just like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Say it however you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean, I think it's one of those things too that I mean it's Lucas's fault from having a kid, but like that's pretty ballsy too. Like it's hard to make movies with kids in them. Oh Most yeah. Most people don't want to. And he you know, he was Adam and Anakin had to be a little kid and he he kinda was stuck with what he was stuck with, but in the end you know, Jake Lloyd is, he is what he is, but he's kind of, you know, he's like a, he is like a little kid. I wouldn't I trade know. it. You could have had, you could have had Anakin be older and then you could have had from Phantom Menace to Attack of the Clones not be 10 years. Like that would have been fine. Mm-hmm. But no, again, I wouldn't change it for the world. I love Jake Lloyd's bizarre performance. Yeah. It, it's, it's very Star Wars. It's a hundred percent Star Wars. Yeah. I mean. It's it's otherworldly <laughs> in a in a kid way. I don't know. What if dreams came true, and you could be who you wanted to be? You could do what you wanted to do. But dreams do come true, don't they? Uh, so shortly after that, you got a great part with uh, Lucas giving a tour of the set to Spielberg. <laughs> Who may or may not be drunk. <laughs> and I love two of my favorite things that Spielberg does is he calls he compares the battle droid arm to a dangle weed. That's his quote. And I can't, I can't remember if it's Lucas or Spielberg. I think it's Lucas calls the Gungans the Goongas. The Goongas, yep. This is amazing right here. Isn't it? Just one of our battle droids, actually. Battle oh, that, look at this. Oh, this is cool. this is the new stormtrooper. Oh, this man. is our new stormtrooper. But in a way, he's the old model, replaced by Star Wars being the new stormtrooper. And they really are pretty useless. Yeah, pretty useless. with these old dangle weed here. Yeah. So, uh, no, that's the Oh, sorry. You know, these droids, they can't get the physiology right. There we go. And so what happens in the end is they all join forces and everything, and the Goongas battle the droids in this huge kind of war and peace battle. Uh-huh. I mean, literally war and peace. I mean, right. It's huge. You know, 10,000 troops on either Both side. Both sides coming at each yeah, other. Coming at each other. That's great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. You got um, George Lucas talking to the um, to the assistant director, and that's pretty gold because Lucas says, uh, sometimes I forget to say action or cut. Most of the time I just sit there looking miserable. I take it. Yeah. You say action. After we roll camera, I'll say some, Sometimes I forget. People forget. <laughs> if I forget to say action or cut, just step in and say action and cut. I manage action and cut and faster and more intense. And then uh, mostly I sit there looking miserable and quiet. <laughs> and that reminded me of Gareth Edwards talking about when Lucas visited the set of Rogue One and how like he can't tell when he's joking or not. 
Yeah. Well, that was actually, uh, if anyone, if you went and watched the Dave Filoni interview too, like he talks about that too, how like George Lucas just messes with people. (laughs) (laughs) And that's part of his sense of humor is he's just messes with people and everyone's intimidated by him so they don't get the joke. (laughs) They're too afraid to laugh at him. (laughs) Uh, You got a Newt Gunray. uh, Okay. Master. I want to talk about this part because at first I thought that was Silas Carson, who is a uh, prequel superstar because he's New Gunray and uh, Kiari Mundi and the guy who flies the shuttle at the beginning that gets blown up. Yeah. But it's not. It's the other prequel superstar, Jerome Blake. Oh. Who plays Rune Hakko, Masamita, Orn Frita. And everyone's favorite bearded snake man, Opo Rancisis. Oh my god! So that dude's a superstar, <laughs> and that's him. Like I, I guess, testing out the Rune Hako head. Now, if you open your mouth, as if you're doing exaggerated dialogue, does it work? Exaggerated dialogue. Oh yes, it kind of moves. Yeah. Exaggerated dialogue. Yeah, it's, it's like I love those guys. Why isn't he at every celebration making ten million dollars? I don't know. He's yeah. <laughs> he, could, he could just be sitting there with like a bucket to like give him money, and I would just put twenties in it because yeah, he's like all my favorites. <laughs> a table full of eight by tens. I was all your favorite people. Yeah, just a shirt with everyone he was on it, or everyone he was in on it. <laughs> I wrote down um, ILM's Jeff Olson, who's the guy, the real, not so real, the different colored uh, magic markers. He shows up again. And I started to think, because he looks so worried during that real, not so real part, but I think that's just his face in general. Yeah, he always looks kind of worried. Is that the mustache guy? Yeah, he's got the mustache. Yeah. I don't. I have to look him up. I don't remember if he worked on any... Like, maybe after Phantom Menace, he was out. He couldn't take it. Because <laughs> I don't remember seeing him on any of the other making of stuff for the later movies. <laughs> he got the hell out of there. Yeah. yeah. He's he's on an island by himself now. <laughs> the whole thing terrified him too much. <laughs> um, shortly after that, you've got one of my favorite, absolute favorite parts. Rick McCallum. Who, Rick McCallum... I think uh, yesterday, Monday, was his birthday. So happy birthday, Rick McCallum. Yeah, we love you, Rick McCallum. We love you forever. I thought that we had decided not to fall in love. That we would be forced to live a lie. And that it would destroy our lives. I think our lives are about to be destroyed anyway. Please answer our emails for an interview. Yeah. He's 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 talking to he's talking to somebody about how uh, he's going out to New York to get Nally, to show Nellie Portman the script because she's about to sign for three movies that she's never read the script for. <laughs> and then somebody's like, "Hey, Rick, you got to go. You got a phone call." And it's Ewan McGregor calling Rick McCallum on the phone. And Rick McCallum goes to his office and immediately picks up the phone, dude. <laughs> Hello, dude. I'm so f***ing happy. This is just, it's brilliant. It's so, I'm so happy. George is so happy. It's just, it's just fantastic. <laughs> I think Rick McCallum is a perfect producer for the prequels because like the prequels, people either love him or they hate him <laughs> because he is OFR. He's super outrageous. He's extremely 
too much or <laughs> he's like as, as over the top as the prequels are that's Colin's personality I mean really really happy we all are it's going to be fantastic I mean it's going to be a great movie it's going to be a lot of fun but it's also I think going to be so worthwhile if George Lucas would have told Rick McCallum that he wants to arrive every day on the set on a hot air balloon Rick McCallum would have made it happen yeah. dude <laughs> And he would have thought it was a good idea. Dude, that's a great idea. (laughs) I just saw Liam in Prague. It's fantastic. It's going to be fantastic. You know, and I feel like for the the Rick McCallum era is sadly starting to fade away. But there was the day where you didn't get Star Wars news on the internet. You had to wait for that issue of Star Wars Insider to come. And you had to flip like page six or whatever to get the Rick McCallum update. And Rick McCallum was your connection to everything you need to know to stay alive. And it didn't even matter if it was true. No. (laughs) Because he would just tell you whatever popped into his head. I remember. But it was great. I remember like during the time of the special editions, Insider, like the early days of Insider, when it went from the Lucasfilm fan club to Insider, and there would be like prequel update with Rick McCallum. And this is like 96 or something. <clears throat> and I was like, who the hell is Rick McCallum? And there was a picture of him like wearing like desert sunglasses. And I'm like, who's this guy? And they'd be like, oh my God, he's like a producer on these mysterious prequel movies. Yeah. But if you, you know, once you realize who he is, right, he goes back. He was a producer on all the special editions. He worked on Young Indiana Jones. R- Radioland Murders. Yeah, so him and Lucas went back, went way back. Do you know they met on Return to Oz? Because Walter, no. Walter Murch, um, Lucas's old buddy, his college roommate, did all the sound on THX 1 and 3 8. The only movie he's ever directed was Return to Oz. Lucas was visiting the set, and McCallum was, it was shot in England, and McCallum was on the sound stage. And Lucas and McCallum just started talking and hit it off. I wonder if they still hang out. See, that's the thing. That's one thing I got a lot in the beginning is that they were buddies. Like, they would wrap shooting on a day on Phantom Menace, and it would be Lucas and McCallum walking out of the set like, hey, everybody, we'll see you tomorrow. And as they're, like, walking away, they're kind of like, ah, this was good today. That was good. Night, guys. Thanks Night. very much. Night. We're going to leave the Panaka one until the end of the day. And... Uh, you know, I'm hoping I can really cut through this thing. She's great. She's, She's Natalie great. is fantastic. And I mean, Ian. she just, it all came together. She was perfect, you know. I only had to do two takes. She really had it down. She was great. Just great. And Ian, I I'm very excited. Lovely. Well, Ian's always yeah, great. Sure. I mean, he's, he's reliable. And, but I, didn't, I had no idea what was going to happen with her. And I learned a lot with Jake. Yeah, do you think they still call each other or something? I don't know. I wonder, yeah, because after he retired, I wondered if uh, if him and Lucas were still buddies. Maybe they are. I don't see why they wouldn't be. It didn't seem like there was any bad blood between them. It's like, what did McCallum think of Force Awakens? You know he saw it. Man, I would pay. There's another commentary I would want. The, mm-hmm. George, the George Lucas with Rick McCallum commentary on Force Awakens. <laughs> be priceless. Dude. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting shortly after that. There's an ILM meeting where, no, they're talking about Jar Jar, the suit versus not suit. And John Knoll calls himself out as a troublemaker 
You know, Austin, I, I have I have a, a reputation as a troublemaker back at ILM, always being. Thank God you the, do. That's why you're here. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so listen, I'm I'm doing my damnedest to figure out. Well, how do we even do a shot like this? Which is interesting. But then also, John Noel, if you pay attention to those meetings, John Noel is like the only one who, meeting by meeting, will just, he, he has enough balls to come out and be like, I don't think we can do that. I don't know how we're going to do that. He is the, the problem solver in ILM. He is. And it's interesting. And, and the voice of reason without yeah. being reasonable. Yeah. He also comes up with the crazy stuff. But yeah, it's kind of like if, if, Rick, or if John Noel says you can't do it, then it's definitely something crazy. And I'm glad that he's still there and still so involved. Yeah. Yeah. I think he loves it there too much. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing with one of those, uh, I don't remember if it was that scene or the earlier one where they were talking about the budgeting too, though, was just how they were aware that if Phantom Menace worked, that everybody else is going to make their movies this way, mm-hmm. which completely came true. I mean, any, you know, Marvel movie today, any big blockbuster movie is made the way they've kind of figured out how to do in Phantom Menace. It's true. Um, in doing that many effect shots and actually keeping the cost down too. Because as much as people think George Lucas just has unlimited money, for whatever reason, he likes to make movies. I think it's honestly because I feel like half of the reason he liked to make movies was to prove that it could be done and done in a way that other people could benefit from. And if he just spent unlimited money on each of the movies, he's not really... He's not helping anybody, and it just comes across that like, that's half the reason he wanted to make those movies was to just figure out that, that this can be done and, and give it to the world to make their own movies. Well, and it's exactly what he did with A New Hope, but the biggest thing in his way with A New Hope is he had all the money was coming from 20th Century Fox, but A New Hope completely changed the way mm-hmm. movies were made, and it's like he did it again in Phantom Menace, but... Well, and, you know, I wonder, too, if some of it is the he's still hesitant from how he almost lost so much money on Empire Strikes Back as well, where, like, that was the first time he put up his own money and that movie went so over budget that he may just always be a little nervous in that respect as well, too. Yeah, well, it's like later in the movie when he's talking to Frank Oz and he's like, you can destroy these things. Yeah. <laughs> when American Graffiti made 30, or more American Graffiti made 30 cents or whatever yeah. he said. <laughs> Uh, and Frank Oz seemed like he didn't even know that was a movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, wait, more American Graffiti? That happened? You just never know on these things. I did a more American Graffiti. It made 10 cents. Really? Failed miserably. Yeah. You can, you can do it. You can destroy these things. You know? It is possible. Uh, yeah, Ewan McGregor getting his hair cut. Um, yeah, thick, thick and tight hair. Yeah, thick Scottish hair. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we sure that this isn't a terrible mistake? Are you scared to death? Oh, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I love what if my dad this is the biggest one. This is the highest one. If he decides he wants it longer, then he can wear the wig. Okay. And play the part. Scottish hair, it's really gorgeous and really thick and tight. Oh, Thickest hair in the world. Highlanders. Uh, and he's got the awesome side braids that never made it on screen. Yeah, you're right. 
Those got changed, yeah, before filming. They were in like all the production art. Like even the storyboards had uh, Obi-Wan with the side braids and never ended up on screen. Now, does Katie Lucas keep Ewan McGregor's hair? She might have, because it was funny to see the kids were, well, one, to see Jet being so tiny since, you know, he's in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. And then um, I can't remember which one of them was talking about what if they decide to make your hair longer again. (laughs) The kids are just giving them a hard time. I think because that's Katie that, like, she's like, can I keep this? Like, a big chunk of Ewan McGregor's hair. I would have done it, too. Yeah. Clone him. Yeah. Yeah. Someday. (laughs) She'll have the money. They, uh, one of my favorite Rick McCallum quotes He's talking about Jar Jar And if Jar Jar is a pure CG character It will be the most special thing in the world <laughs> The guy we got Has got a great walk and everything And when he translated into Jar Jar It was great The thing is though One of the things that could make this thing The most special thing in the world Is that it is a pure CG character yeah. But what we're trying to do in the end Is no, speed up the animation We have the guy anyway yeah. We're shooting the guy anyway So if you have the guy in the suit, it costs you the aggravation of how does he stand it in the suit, the wear and tear in the suit, does it look good? Yeah, no, I know, but yeah. at the end, that's all that stuff. But what you gain is that there are moments where he interacts with humans and everything, which cut costs very fast. Yeah. You know, it is interesting, yeah, going back to like how much crazy Rick McCollum is kind of pushing lucas to do things that everyone now hates lucas for doing <laughs> where it's like lucas seemed hesitant to go full cg on a lot of stuff and rick was like we gotta we gotta go you gotta do it mm-hmm. it's gonna be fantastic it's gonna be the most special thing in the world yeah which you know i think that's good that's yeah. probably one of the reasons the prequels are so over the top is rick was there just like lucas comes up with a crazy idea he's like that's great go with it <laughs> He's just an enabler, you know, and maybe that's, that's, some people don't like that, but it gave us some, some magic. <laughs> it gives Coyote Mundi. Yeah, Coyote Mundi. Bearded Snake Man. <laughs> uh, you got Ewan McGregor picking out his lightsaber. I've been waiting for this for weeks. I've been thinking, every morning I say, I wonder if it's today I'll get to choose. <laughs> Which is a great part. He's so excited. Yeah. Um, then shortly after that, you have the first uh, table read where you've got a great part where you got Rick McCallum, the living legend, talking to Kitster. Yeah, and little Kitster with his glasses on. <laughs> Kitster with glasses. And he's like, this is when Darth Vader was a good boy. <laughs> this is about Darth Vader when he's a young boy. Yeah, this is when he's a good boy. And then what happens to him? He joins the film business. <laughs> I'm so happy that they had Kitster in the behind the scenes. And Kitster had to be at the table read. Yeah, they were messing around. <laughs> Everybody had to be there. Except for Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson wasn't there, but Kitster was. Yeah, well, Liam Neeson's no Kitster. No, in the scheme of things. I, I wonder who, who was doing the read for the, the My Bones Are Aching Annie <laughs> lady, if she was there. Storm's coming up, honey. You better get home quick. Um, you know, I thought watching it again was great in that scene. Natalie Portman is wearing her Attack of the Clones outfit. Yeah, she is, and her hair is Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yeah, it's like they just took her from the table read for Attack of the Clones. 
You got um, the first day of shooting, which kicks off with Rick McCallum saying, good luck, everybody, and let's kick ass. <laughs> good luck, everybody, now let's kick ass. 77, take one. I mean, we, and we give a shout-out, too. Also, like, we, I was talking about Rick McCallum and the Insider with him being your gateway to Star Wars. At Celebrations 2 and 3, the Rick McCallum Spectacular, he was like a rock star on stage. Yeah. No, because I don't know. I think if you haven't yeah, seen him in person, like you don't realize just how much he can just get you hyped up for Star Wars. And it's like, and then going back to like half of what he said probably was not true. <laughs> he just said whatever popped in his head, but it's like it got you excited. I just remember when we talked about it before, like when we saw the Yoda footage at Celebration 2, and I want to say that it ended with Rick McCallum up on stage just screaming at us. I'm sure he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we should also give a special shout-out to um, a part where Ewan McGregor is trying to jump up, and they can't get it right because they see him bounce, and they have to get out a 2 by 4 and one of the people holding up the 2 by 4 is the Quackon stunt double. Yeah. <laughs> Where the Qui-Gon stunt double looks is this skinny dude wearing a Qui-Gon wig. Yeah. And he's probably in most of those shots in the end, maybe. Yeah. Someone needs to make a book that's just pictures of the stunt doubles in their costumes. Yes. A hundred photos. Yeah. I would flip through that for hours. Because in addition to the stunt doubles, they have the lighting doubles, too, that come out and just stand there while they do the lighting. <laughs> and a lot of times they're in the costumes as well. Yeah, who like, is that for I, Force Awakens, too? Like, all of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, all of Every movie. <laughs> I don't care what movie it is. I just want to see them all. Star Wars doubles. Dear Del Rey Books. <laughs> we have an idea for you. <laughs> uh, there's a part where they're filming... With uh, Darth Maul talking to Nemodians, and for a hot second, you hear Darth Maul talking with Ray Park voice. Did you catch that? Yeah, it's weird. I feel there's more to this, my master. The two Jedi may be using the Queen for their own purpose. <laughs> it's right up there with, yeah, whatever uh, David Prowse is doing Darth Vader lines. It just doesn't sound right. <laughs> Lucas had never intended to use the on-set vocal performance of David Prowse. Start tearing the ship apart piece by piece until you found those tapes. Find the passengers of this vessel. I want them alive. What? I like the part, I think right after that too, where John Noel just shows up and basically goes down the list of all the digital stuff they have to do. It's like, yeah, we're just to do this, this, and this, and this, and that, and this, and that. That's oh, pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah we're, we're just filming here. We're going to replace that wall. We're going to do that. Yeah. The main things here are we have the... Uh, the walking hologram generator, which will be added in computer graphics, but it's in front of everybody who's walking. Um, we have a map painting of uh, Theed City to put back there, and the light fixtures on the wall in the hallway uh, are uh, not what George wants, so we're going to replace them with something else. Uh, when the camera pans over to look out this archway, we want to have filled that archway full of tanks and, uh, and battle droids. So it's a relatively straightforward shot. Then things kind of switch to Tunisia, and you got it's 104 degrees. Everyone's dying. George a Lu- real desert. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Force Awakens. We truly are out in a desert, a real desert. Uh, George Lucas is wandering around in a flannel shirt. They're doing a bunch of filming, and then the big sandstorm hits, 
and you got uh, Rick McCallum driving up to the sandstorm. This is grim. This is seriously grim. <laughs> this is grim. This is seriously grim. But not unfavorably doable. And then uh, he's on the walkie-talkie with the great line, uh, is there any news on Liam's wig? They can't find his beard either. Yeah. Uh, and any news on Liam's wig? Is that all taking place? Can we win on this one? Over. Yeah, Rick, they're trying to clean it up here on the location. But um, at the moment, we still haven't tracked down Liam's beard. <laughs> Where's Qui-Gon's beard? Yeah. But then, too, with his wig, they're talking about, like, yeah, we almost got the all the dirt and mud out of it. Like, <laughs> you know, when you see the movie, it's like that that hair had been through a thunderstorm and somebody, like, picked all the mud out of it their hands <laughs> I, I like in that part too how he takes charge how he's like we've got to rebuild everything like if people have to work all day all night that's what they got to do yeah but it's it's fascinating to see like i mean that stuff got wrecked oh yeah and, the pod and racer again, engines like, yeah they built a lot of pods and everyone's like oh they're all cg or whatever but mm-hmm. no i mean they built these big giant pods they had the big cardboard ones for the background like or not cardboard i guess they're plywood or whatever but yeah, there were a lot of sets in mm-hmm. the desert there, and then all got just wrecked by a thunderstorm. Check Algeria over. You got the last day of filming, and uh, <laughs> there's a great part where uh, Rick McCallum's talking about how everyone is in the right frame of mind, and then they cut to a bunch of shots of the crew like <laughs> almost falling asleep on the set. <laughs> You know, and that goes back to, like, the honesty of this documentary. I mean, people were exhausted. Yeah, they were working hard. Yeah. In a real desert. <laughs> With real sets, practical effects. Yeah. So Guys in suits. Ahmed Best on set in his Jar Jar costume, mm-hmm. even though he got painted out of the movie. Like, he was there on set. He was hot, but he's still cool. It cuts kind of right after that to, again, one of my favorite parts. The guy doing the voice of Sebulba. Yogodo Bantapudu. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lewis McLeod. Lewis saying McLeod. O- over and over again, Yokota Bantapudu. <laughs> but you can put a little laugh on the end of that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about it. <laughs> 309, 310, take two. Yeah, that guy, he wears his Academy Award for Sebulba. Because I don't, I don't see how, I don't care if you hate Phantom Menace, there's nothing wrong with Sebulba. No. Sebulba is like a top-notch, everything about Sebulba. Do you remember when there in Chicago, there was a, at the, the, was it the Science Museum? There was a, uh. A, a special effects display and i drove i called you and i said i was coming out for it and i was like they got a sebulba head there because because <laughs> i was online and i was like well what's at this special effects display well, there's a spider-man suit that's pretty cool there's the ark of the covenant well that's really cool but then i was like wait a minute there's a sebulba head yeah you were in the car <laughs> five minutes after that Come meet me there. You'll know where to find me. The Sebulba head. Yeah, I'm camping out. I got a lawn chair, some Mountain Dew, and Sebulba. 
All right, that was good. We'll try one more with a little bit more, a little bit more anger. Yeah. <laughs> I had that, um, the, the first, the N64 pod racing game, the t-shirt that had just a big picture of Saboba on it. <laughs> I wore the crap out of that summer yeah, of 99. Where's the hot toy Saboba? Where's the hot toy Saboba? You know? Has there even been a Funko bobblehead of Sebulba? No, I don't think so. I don't think there was even a uh, Hasbro 12-inch Sebulba either, I don't think. There's a Lego Sebulba. That's true. I think I have. Sebulba lives in our hearts. (laughs) (laughs) But just thinking, like, 10 years when Disney's just making anything and everything they can, maybe there'll be a Sebulba, like, Star Wars story. Yeah, there should about be. How, you know, he started out as a racer with good intentions, but eventually he just all he cared about was winning. If Lucasfilm invited me to come sit down with them and pitch ideas for standalone Star Wars stories, I'd be like, number one, Sebulba, the early years, or Sebulba's redemption. Oh, yeah, after his loss to Anakin, mm-hmm. he turns his life around. Mm-hmm. Maybe, he, maybe he quits racing. Maybe he. Does something else like he opens up an orphanage for dugs that have no parents because he wants to help people. I would watch that live action TV show. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Sebulba, <laughs> paging Doctor Sebulba. <laughs> he just delivers babies. <laughs> Yoko da Bantapudu. <laughs> so then you got. George Lucas and Rick and Ben Burt and a bunch of people watching a really rough cut of uh, Phantom Menace, which we talked about before. And that's probably, like we were saying, the most raw part of the whole documentary. Yeah, because they come out of the rough cut. Like Everyone is just like, I don't know what we just watched. It's too, it's too, it's more extremely than anything I've ever done. It's too intense. I mean, think, yeah. I mean, it's Phantom Menace, like, that movie's relentless. Oh, yeah. Like, go back and watch Phantom Menace. The first 30 minutes, there's more stuff in the first 30 minutes of Phantom Menace than all two hours of Force Awakens. Like, it's just relentless stuff and scenes after scenes and new stuff, and they go here and they go there, and it's like, yeah, it's faster and more intense than... It's like... It's one of the just like one of the most intense movies I think ever. And people talking There's so much in it. People talking nonsense nonstop. Yeah, right off the get. Yeah, right off the get go. It's just <laughs> space nonsense. I don't sense anything. It's not about the mission master. It's something elsewhere, elusive. Don't center on your anxieties, Obi Wan. Keep your concentration here and now, where it belongs. But Master Yoda said I should be mindful of the future. But not at the expense of the moment. Be mindful of the living force, young Padawan. Yes, Master. How do you think this trade viceroy will deal with the Chancellor's demands? These Federation types are cowards. The negotiations will be short. I would love to see if, I wonder if they, I mean, do they keep that stuff? Like, is that original cut floating around somewhere? Oh, God, probably not, but I wish. (sighs) Because that would be so just... I want to see, yeah, like, what's the cut that freaks George Lucas out? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> I would, and I'd be like, listen, I'm not going to hate on anything. I love Phantom Menace. I love Phantom Menace more than water. But 
let me see let me see phantom menace in its early days yeah well i mean i thought about that for all the prequels that they have they have the versions of the movie with this the blue screen backgrounds and you know 2d animatics stuck in and all that stuff i mean they've showed some of that for some of the deleted scenes like mm-hmm. put the whole movie on the discs i would watch 10 different cuts of the movies with no effects like mm-hmm. People want to see that stuff. I, I think they do. I do. I do. We do. I don't know about other people, but yeah, yeah we do. You can charge us double. <laughs> oh. There should be a special area of celebration where it's just like you have to pass a written test and they hook you up to a lie detector. And if you pass the lie detector test, you can go watch the early cut of Phantom Menace. <laughs> They take you upstairs to heaven. <laughs> it's, it's a white room, and they're just playing all the rough cuts of Phantom Minutes. <laughs> and there's country gravy, like a chalice full of country gravy <laughs> you drink. <laughs> a chalice made out of chicken with country gravy in it. You just drink from the chalice while you watch it. You think about the very first Star Wars Sitting in there. Yeah. No, I know. And it starts open. I, you don't know what the hell. I, I do a particular kind of movie, of which this is consistent, but it is a very hard movie to follow. And at the same time, I've done it a little more extremely than I've ever done in the past. It's stylistically designed to be that way, and you can't undo that. But we can diminish the effects of it. We can slow it down a little bit so that <clears throat> if it's intense for us, yeah, we don't know what I'm You know, a regular person's going to go nuts. After that, you get some more uh, budget meetings. John Knoll still being bold, talking to everybody, telling everybody what's what. You got a great part where John Knoll is just talking to somebody, walking around. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary, again. And somebody just stops John Knoll and has him look at a bunch of papers. <laughs> yeah, you can't get out of here. You forgot something. Yeah. You forgot to look you at these to- papers. What is the scene too? There's some there's some nonsense too. They're like, we need to know what's going on in this scene. Yeah, is this Anakin's arm? What is this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, you, you know something we didn't talk about that we should. Um, there's a part with the George Lucas and Ben Burt. Yeah, I was just gonna say we missed that part. The where they're editing. Yeah, where they're talking about. Uh, yeah, the scene, like where they're about to, they're figuring out where to land the Padme's ship. And they're obsessing over what Panaka's doing, and they figure out that they can combine two different takes in one shot because they didn't want. Do you get what they didn't want? They didn't want Panaka to sit down. Yeah, so it looked like they Panaka sat down too soon. So they wanted Panaka to stay standing, I, maybe so it didn't distract you from Obi Wan talking or something. But yeah, so basically, they took two different takes. They offset the timing on the one with Panaka. And at some point, someone in the ILM would have to paint, you know, paint the mat out so that it lined up. But yeah, they're basically editing multiple takes into a single take. This is outrageous. It's outrageous. This is outrageous. Which is just over the top craziness. And it's like they're doing stuff they can do just because they can do it. <laughs> I have nothing against it. But I, every time I watch that part, I'm just like, what was so wrong with Panaka sitting down? Yeah. It's crazy. But that scene I thought was really cool too because again, like Phantom Menace is this big crazy movie, 
but it's also it's an independent movie. It's mm-hmm. like George Lucas and Ben Burt and ILM kind of like made the whole movie <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's like the two of the Ben Burt and George Lucas are just sitting there editing pretty much the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Just chilling out. And then when Ben Burt's not doing that, he's doing the sounds and it's like, there's like four dudes made the whole, I mean, and a hundred people at ILM, but like when you get down to it, it's like there's four people making this movie mm-hmm. and it's not like there's not a committee of executives and people in the story group and all this stuff. It's like, just a couple dudes <laughs> making a little movie called Phantom Menace. That's totally insane. I'm never touching that thing again. So then getting towards the end, they get up right to the release of Phantom Menace, uh, which is always kind of awesome. Just a little snapshot in time and how freaking crazy that release was. The Phantom Menace opens at midnight. The in the Star Wars started lining up over a month ago. All right, get out your lightsabers. You just may have noticed that Star Wars, the latest episode, opens nationally at midnight tonight. The hype surrounding this movie has been overwhelming. Now the question is, will it deliver? They're about to open the doors here in just a few minutes, and people are revved up. Some 2.2 million Americans from New York and then you got a theater, it looks like somewhere in San Francisco, where right before the movie comes out, and people are going completely insane. Rick McElm gets up on stage and he says to the crowd, This is fucking awesome. Yeah! The whole thing ends with uh, a nice thing of George Lucas handwriting what's about to be his new masterpiece, Attack of the Clones. Yeah, and basically writing as much as as little as he can without giving anything away. <laughs> the movie starts. There's space. Man, that was exciting at the time. Like, oh man, he's writing to take the clothes. It starts in space. Yeah, it's gonna be space again. The beginning, thankfully, now it was the the DVD is long out of print, <clears throat> but it's on YouTube. If you want to watch it, and we'll post it up on our Facebook page at least because it's out there now. It's on the Star Wars YouTube channel. You can watch it. And I feel like there's a lot of people who have never seen it. I hear all the time people like, I just discovered this documentary because the DVD has been out of print for so long now. Yeah, and for whatever reason, they didn't put it on the Blu rays. Yeah, which is weird. I don't know if they just thought it'd be more people to maybe see it on YouTube. Who knows? Yeah. But, but if yeah, you, if you if you have an hour, watch it. It's great. Mm-hmm. It has a 1.6 million views on YouTube, so a lot of people are watching it. Wow, that's crazy. That's great. Experience the spectacle. Feel the excitement. Share the fun. Take the journey. Again. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, rated PG. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we got a message on the Blast Points Facebook page from a guy named Jay Shearer, and Jay co-wrote a Star Wars fan film called Star Wars Rivals, and it's a story of two Padawans dealing with the dark side. And they wrote it as an anti-bullying Star Wars fan film. And Gabe, you watched it too, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I watched it. It's uh, it's really well done. It's like the production value is great. It's uh, I'm surprised. I think they made it for the fan film contest, and I'm surprised it didn't make it into the finals because it, it's really well done. Yeah, um, he wanted us to give a shout out on the show, which I'm more than happy to do because. I mean, we've watched a lot of Star Wars fan films. You go back and listen to our fan film awards episode. We've watched a lot of them, and this one is a good one. I really, I recommend it. Star Wars Rivals. Look it up on YouTube. So we don't have any new iTunes reviews this week, which is a bummer. Yeah. But hopefully hopefully next week, if you're listening to this, head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, and we will read it on the very next show. Yep, and if you have any general last points, questions, and comments, uh, send those our way, and we'll try to read those as well. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. And if you like the show, uh, do us a favor, share it with your friends on like social media. Share a link to our episodes or our page on SoundCloud or iTunes and uh, help us spread the word about the show. Yeah, and you can also um, you can like our Facebook page and we're on Instagram and you can talk to us on Twitter. It's at blast underscore points. And you can read some Star Wars stuff that I write over on uh, doomrocket.com. It's good stuff. Yeah. I'm almost at the end of season one of Clone Wars. Ooh. Which I think it's going to time up perfectly before Rebels starts. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the season finale of the first season was. Cad Bane. Oh, yeah. Holocron Heist or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So I'm looking forward to getting yeah, into Cad Yeah, Cad Bane. Man, I still hope he shows up in, in Rogue One. Ooh. Live well, action for kid. the Han Solo movie. I don't know. Live action Cat Bane needs to happen. I would love it. So that about wraps it up for episode 36 of Blast Points. Uh, we'll be back next. <laughs> so, on behalf of uh, episode 36 here of Blast Points, uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. Watch the beginning. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. Awesome. Yeah! May the force be 